Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. Hey there, this is Brittany Luce from NPR's It's Been a Minute. KQED's podcasts like The Bay, Bay Curious, Mind Shift, Right Nowish, and more all tell the stories of the Bay and beyond with reliable, human-centered journalism. They aim to inspire, make you think, entertain, and expand your understanding of the place you call home. Here's how you can support podcasting at KQED. Showing your support is easy, and you can join Brittany in supporting KQED Podcast too at donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast. From KQED. From KQED in San Francisco, I'm Alexis Madrigal. San Francisco's SROs house 6,000 people, mostly in the Tenderloin. Most of these single-room occupancy hotels were built over a century ago and were pressed into service as supportive housing for people experiencing homelessness over the last 20 years. Now a year-long investigation by the San Francisco Chronicle has found that the city program that manages this housing stock has chronically underfunded some buildings, leading to brutal and deteriorating conditions. We talk with the reporters, as well as a tenant and a supportive housing expert, to figure out why a city spending so much money to reduce homelessness isn't adequately maintaining this crucial housing. That's coming up next, after this news. Welcome to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. When San Francisco Chronicle reporters Joaquin Palomino and Tricia Thadani began talking with tenants of the city's SROs. They heard and saw deplorable conditions. Of roughly 500 SRO residents that were tracked closely by the city, they lost track of a quarter, 20% were known to return to the streets, and a quarter, a quarter died. So after months of investigation, public records requests, and shoe leather reporting, they took their findings to all the different parties that might be held accountable. The owners of the buildings, the nonprofit operators of those SROs, the Department of Homelessness and Supportive Housing, Mayor Breed, and no one was surprised. Yet the conditions have persisted. So today we're going to hear about those conditions and then try to dig into why. The history, the funding, the oversight conflicts, the trauma and substance abuse problems of residents. To begin, we're joined by those Chronicle reporters, Joaquin Palomino and Trisha Thadani. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having us. Yeah, thank you. Joaquin, uh, why don't we start with you. When you started to go talk with residents, you're standing outside these buildings in in the Tenderloin. What are they telling you about the state of repair of the buildings that they're in? Um, so yeah, we, we spent a lot of time, um, hanging outside of buildings, going inside of these SROs and talking to tenants in in total, we talked to about 150 residents and and frontline workers. Um, and we would start to hear sort of similar complaints. Um, there's issues of maintenance. So bathrooms that were, were shut down and, and these are shared bathrooms. So in a lot of these buildings, the, uh, tenants share a bathroom with the other tenants on the floor. So the bathrooms would be shuttered. Um, so, you know, they would have to maybe go 
down a flight of stairs whenever they wanted to use the restroom. Um, vermin infestations, plumbing issues, which would lead to leaks and, and mold and mildew. Uh, a big issue in some of these hotels was broken elevators. And a lot of the tenants in these buildings are physically disabled. Um, so they're in wheelchairs or, or they're elderly and they, they have uh, trouble going down the stairs. And so we heard stories of tenants who would be trapped in their room sometimes for weeks. Um, weeks on end. And, and there's also a lot of safety concerns. You know, tenants felt unsafe in the building because of, you know, people either breaking into their rooms or there's frequent fights in, in the common areas. And, and another thing that came up a lot was, was just death and sort of how, how frequently people die, um, often of drug overdoses. And it was really traumatizing for, for the residents we spoke with. Well, and you were able to actually match up using city records, matching up with the addresses of the SROs to find that 166 people fatally overdosed in city-funded hotels in 2020 and 2021, right? Yes. Um, so these are just the the SROs that provide supportive housing. And, and we looked at the, the medical examiner's records and we found that about 14% of, of the fatal overdoses in the city in this two-year period um, happened in these roughly 70 buildings. Yeah. Trisha, I want to ask you about, you know, you're hearing these complaints from residents. You also know that there are city building inspectors, your city hall reporter for uh, for the Chronicle. What do you do to then go say, like, how do we find the records that might be able to match up with the kind of complaints that residents are making? Yeah. So, I mean, everything we saw was publicly available. Um, you know, Joaquin and I spent a lot of time analyzing Department of Building Inspection records. Um, but what we also found was that the, the actual complaints seemed to be a really big undercount of what was actually happening in a lot of these, in a lot of these rooms. I mean, we had seen sort of like in, in certain rooms, we had seen like verminous infestations and a, like collapsed ceilings and like thermostats stuck at like 81 degrees. And then we would go into the DBI records and look for a complaint um, with that. And we found that they would just be untracked. Um, and what we had heard from a lot from tenants was kind of this um, sort of ambivalence and like distrust that the city would actually do something. And they just didn't feel like it was worth um, either they didn't feel like it was worth reporting it or they didn't know that they had this right and this ability to report it as well. So it really does beg the question of like, what is what is the actual scale of this problem? And is the city fully aware of it? Yeah. Joaquin, the next step as you're kind of trying to figure out like, wh- why is this happening? Is to then go and, and look at the money that's flowing into these places. So can you give us like a, just the brief map of like, how does the money get from the city coffers flowing down to an individual SRO to do this kind of maintenance? Um, yes, yeah, so the buildings are they're funded through a number of means. So there's federal funding that comes to some buildings, there's state funding that comes to some, um, but a lot of them are, are largely supported through the San Francisco General Fund. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the tenants also pay rent. So right now it's capped at 30% of their income. Um, before this year, sometimes it was, you know, $500 a month was kind of a standard rent we saw in a lot of places. Um, and so you have different sort of funding streams coming in. Um, and what we found is that, I mean, the city spends a lot of money on homelessness, right? There's $1.1 billion budget in, in the current two-year budget for homelessness. $160 million just in, in city funds is going towards um, supportive housing programs. 
Uh, but when we started to look at like the actual per unit cost of operating some of these SROs, it, it wasn't a lot, especially considering what the city is trying to do, which is provide safe, stable housing to some of its most vulnerable people. You know, people have been through a lot of trauma. People have been on the streets for, um, you know, oftentimes years. Um, like I said, a lot of people with disabilities, a lot of seniors. Um, and so on like a per unit basis, we found in some buildings, uh, I mean, about $1,800 to both per unit per month to, to lease the room, provide 24 hour staffing with the desk clerks, janitors, you know, case managers who are supposed to connect the residents to, to services in the community. And, and all this is in the most expensive city, obviously in, in the country. So um, we did kind of find in some of these buildings that there was a lot of like the, the, the funding was pretty minimal for, for what the city was trying to do. Yeah. Trisha, is that a choice by the city? That was one of my big questions in reading your report. Is it that the city has the money and is choosing not to put a greater chunk of funds towards this kind of housing? Or are there factors constraining how much money they can put towards maintenance here? Mm -hmm. It's a little bit of both. Um, I mean, what we found through our reporting is we really dug into the history to see how long, like basically how the system was created and how long these issues have persisted for. And what we found over and over again, going back to Newsom, um, is that from our mayors and our administrations, there's this constant sort of fervor of putting money into the new programs, um, you know, where you get like the press conferences and the press releases and the headlines and everything, um, while all the while ignoring sort of this older stock and allowing it to languish while we're focusing on the new thing. Um, and so we found that this has kind of been this like political calculation over and over again. And it makes a lot of sense. You know, our mayors are under extreme political pressure um, to address the homelessness that um, residents and their voters see on the street. And it's also very important to be getting people inside. Um, so obviously they're gonna spend money on sort of expanding the system. Um, but we found like the real harms that have happened when you're only kind of focusing on the new and allowing the old program um, you know, to kind of operate in this underfunded way um, and allowing these buildings to kind of fall into this, into disrepair without much attention on it. Um, so, and then in the last few years, um, as we've had uh, Proposition C, which was a 2018 ballot measure on, biz on uh, big businesses to raise money for homelessness services, um, the spirit of that ballot measure was that it is only to be used for new homelessness services. So now the chunk of our, of the majority of our $1.1 billion budget comes from Proposition C, where, um, you know, that is only supposed to be spent on, on new services. So now you kind of have it enshrined in the budget where, you know, you can only really spend it on expanding the system rather than pouring money into this older system. Um, now it still remain, it remains to be seen what's gonna happen in this upcoming budget cycle um, about whether they will pour more money into the older system in terms of increasing staffing um, or maintenance and repairs, but we just haven't really seen that in a meaningful way over the last couple of administrations. Yeah. Just wanted to know, too, that the city uh, has added, they're saying, 1,500 new housing units of this kind of permanent supportive housing and with another 1,000 in the pipeline. So they are spending money on these kinds of things, but it's, as you said, it's that uh, split between the new system and, and the old system. Um, yeah. yeah. Oh, go ahead. 
so just just to add to that and to get into the city's credit uh the buildings that they are looking at at least the ones that that we have seen um they're they're quite nice um before this investigation published um joaquin and i went to the opening of the garland hotel um mm -hmm. where a bunch of tenants from one sr are going to be moved into and you know there was in the unit that we saw there was a big two big windows um there was like a stone countertop kitchenette there was um, a really nice bathroom and you know the city is putting more thought and intention into the buildings that they're now looking to acquire but then again we're seeing this like two-tiered system where you have all these really nice or relatively nice new buildings and then you have this older stock um, of buildings where you know tenants are kind of are feel like they're stuck. Yeah. Well Kim Palomino we, we've been talking about the physical housing stock, the deterioration there. But one of the other things that you highlight in your investigation is that as little as $7 per day per room is going towards supportive services in, in some of these places. What, why is it that so little money, money is trickling down for help for people who clearly need it? Um, so yeah, we, we looked at uh, staffing ratios in a lot of these buildings. And so, um, you know, called supportive housing for, for a reason. There's supposed to be support services on site that can connect tenants to uh, typically uh, services out in the community. And the city set a goal of creating a ratio where you have one uh, case manager who's overseeing 25 tenants. Um, and that's closely aligns with federal standards. Federal standards is about one to 15 in, in permanent supportive housing programs. Um, and when we looked at the data, we saw in some buildings, you have, you know, one case manager overseeing 85 tenants. Um, and, and all the experts we talked to are saying that that's, I mean, it's just a, it's, it's too big of a caseload to actually offer meaningful help. Um, and, and so right now there's, there's this push and, and the city's putting money into the, the budget to actually try and improve these ratios. But uh, we found a lot of tenants. I mean, they couldn't build trust with their case managers. They they struggled to have you know strong relationships with them because they they were so overworked and there was so much turnover. Yeah, we're talking about a year long San Francisco Chronicle investigation into the SF program that leases residential hotels for unhoused residents. With the reporters behind the investigation, Joaquin Palomino, investigative reporter at the San Francisco Chronicle, and Trisha Thadani. City Hall reporter, also at The Chronicle. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Stay tuned for more Forum after the break. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall -wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall -wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall -wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. 
Welcome back to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. We're talking about a year-long San Francisco Chronicle investigation into the city's SROs and the city department that manages them. We're joined by Trisha Thadani, City Hall reporter at the San Francisco Chronicle, and her partner in this reporting, Joaquin Palomino, investigative reporter at the San Francisco Chronicle. We would like to hear from you. Do you have experience living or working in San Francisco's SROs? You can give us a call, 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. You can also get in touch on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. We're KQED Forum, and our email is forum at kqed.org. So I want to bring in another voice. Zia Martinez is a counselor and mediator and a former resident of the National Hotel. She was also born and raised here in San Francisco. Welcome to the show, Zia. Oh, thank you. Yeah. Could you describe what your room was like at the National Hotel? Um, Yeah, first off, I'd like to thank the city of San Francisco for enabling me to stay in the city that I was born in. Um, But when I was placed at the National Hotel, there was a complete disregard to the fact that I am a um, a survivor of sexual abuse. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, The National Hotel was deplorable. Um, There were people staying in the bathrooms. Um, It was, um, I I had, my room was broken into constantly. Um, During my initial interview with my case manager, he actually asked me out on a, on a date and oh, um, we began a six month relationship where then he was moved to the Baldwin hotel um, where he began another relationship with another client. Um, the room, it was just people, I mean, there, there were people that would come in from the streets and like literally move into the bathrooms, um, which were constantly filthy. Um, there was, you know, a, the, the trash was in the, in the hallway. It did get a little better after COVID started um, but I always felt on guard and at the verge mm-hmm. of being unsafe. Um, I slept with a stun gun next to me. Um, there were a, the third of the building there, there were 90, 90 residents. A third of them were class A sexual offenders. Um, so as far as like me being a, 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 a survivor of sexual abuse, they took complete disregard. In my experience, there were only maybe seven women um, out of the 90 residents that were there. Um, and we were constantly being harassed, hit on, um, just not only by the staff members, but by the tenants. Um, there are good people that, that definitely live in, um, in, in these SROs. Um, I, was, I was raised in the foster care system here in San Francisco. And when I turned 18, I just matriculated into, you know, not being able to find housing, things like that. Um, and I was placed on a priority listing in order to get into the SRO mm-hmm. um, because I was a foster care. Uh, I was in the foster care system. Um, but the National Hotel was it, it was it was like the Wild yeah. West in there. Um, I Do mean, there were just open drug sales, open drug uh, drug dealings. I mean, people passing out um, in the hallways um, and not even talking about the deaths that would always happen. There would always seem like every right before COVID, there seemed like there was a new death every month. We were having like a, a candlelight, you know, um, ceremony in the front room for, you know, Mr. So-and-so who died or this person there. And there, and there was nothing ever said about how they passed away or, you know, it was just, it was always a lot of death. And the only time you knew that someone had died is when you could smell the Mm -hmm. smell of death, like coming out of the room. 
Um, and, you know, go to the, the manager and be like, hey, it smells like someone died here. And then, they, you know, you see the coroner come and, and move them away. Um, it was it was just when I when I talk about living like it was one step better than living in on the streets. Um, Tenderloin. Yeah, how housing did you see that comparison? Like, how did you see your options? Like you're living there. Clearly, these are bad, bad conditions. I mean, did you consider going back on the street, leaving the city? Like, what were what what was going through your mind as you're trying to figure out well, how you get out of this? Well, while I was there, I've been a full time student. I'm ten ten um, units away from being accepted into the social work program at uh, San Francisco State. So I had I have a goal. My goal is to you know get my degree, and I'm using using the SROs as like a segue into my new my next life. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, many people just said, you know what, this is not even worth it and move back onto the streets. But for me, I really didn't have, a, a, you know, another option. I did have a roof over my head. I did have a key. So I was thankful for that. Um, and I was able to get to class and, and do what I had to do. Um, but it's it's not that far from being on the streets, except you have a roof. You do have electricity. You know, there, there's there's a bathroom. Um and, you know, my, my rent was a third of my income, so it wasn't that much, but I knew that they were getting about $1,700 for my room. Mm-hmm. Um, and I mean, you know, my, my lights went off for, they were off for about four days until I got maintenance to come and, you know, put another light in. Um, that's be living in the dark. Um, I did numerous client complaints. Um, those just all went, I did actually 80 different client complaints during my two years staying there. Wow. And they were just, they were where do those complaints go Zia I I turn them into the front desk and they're supposedly to take them to the manager and then from there there um I asked for copies of them there was never any there was never any response so the response would be like um oh we they leave it on my my door saying oh we have your complaint and that was it there was no follow-up um very little communication with even the manager who um was arrested for stealing um people's edd money when the pan the with p- the pandemic funds that came um she was arrested in the hotel while we were all there they took her out and they never gave a, a, an answer of why they arrested her um this is speaking on to the type of people that they hire um i was uh, my, my neighbor next door actually threatened my life um it was on it was recorded i um you know went to the manager i went to go file a restraining order and they refused to give me her last name so that i could actually continue with the restraining order um i mean she threatened she threatened my life she said she was going to have me killed you know if i walked outside and this was over um her uh, her boyfriend visited me in my room um i think i think he was getting a cigarette or something or another it was, it was like a five minute you know it was just and yeah. she, it was completely it was just it was hell, actually. Um, mm. Thankfully, the place burnt down last July, and I was moved to Civic Center Residences, which is a lot better. Um, they're they're a little bit more on it. They have um, I have a really nice case manager. Um, their supportive services are are here, and I have a bathroom in my in my unit. So um, I've definitely moved up a notch. But it took a fire and all of us being displaced and losing yeah. everything for um, you know the National Hotel to be closed down. Um, hey, Zia, thank you so much for, for sharing this experience. I mean, I'm so sorry. And I'm also glad that you've got a better place to live and that you're moving towards towards that goal. Thank you so much for, for joining us yeah, this morning. Yeah, you're welcome. Thank you for having me. You know, Trisha Thadani and Joaquin Palmino of the San Francisco Chronicle, I, 
you've heard a lot of these stories. What do you what do you make of having to live under those kind of conditions? Yeah, it's it's heartbreaking. Um, you know, like no one should have to live like that. Um, and you know, we we spoke to a lot of people who are struggling with very very severe mental illnesses and also physical disabilities and it just doesn't really make sense as to why they are in that environment. Um, there was one woman in particular that really stuck with Joaquin and I. Um, she was extremely disabled <clears throat> and she was in a wheelchair and was on the third floor um, of the Mission Hotel. And because she was in a wheelchair and had a, um, a physical condition where she had to go to the bathroom frequently, she actually had to have like a portable toilet in her room mm. um, and that she had to, you know, empty herself and, and everything. And, and so we just constantly heard these really heartbreaking stories. And yeah, it just, it really begs the question of like, is why is the city housing people like this? Yeah. I, you know, when we look at the history of this, the, the development of this system, Joaquin, this one's coming to you. You know, it seems like what we're living through here is kind of the legacy of people's past programs to just get as many people off the streets as possible. Can you take us back to the Newsom administration and some of the decisions that he and Mayor Lee made with regard to these SROs? Uh, yeah, so so Newsom, um, when he was mayor of San Francisco, uh, right when he was supervisor, he sort of championed Care Not Cash, which was really when the city started converting a lot of these buildings into permanent supportive housing for tenants. Um, and then when he was as mayor, he sort of oversaw this this huge expansion of uh, supportive housing in the city, and and the only way for it to pencil out. For, for him to sort of achieve the, the goals that the city had set out was to, to lease a lot of these SROs in the Tenderloin. Um, there, at the time, there were sort of two separate programs. There was one run by the Department of Public Health um, that had a lot of like really robust support services on site. Um, this, it, it was a, a sort of a much better funded program. Mm -hmm. And then there were the um, Care Not Cash hotels and other master lease hotels that had uh, far less support. And so it, there really was, from everyone we talked to at the time, there was this just push of like, we need to, we need to open as many of these as we can. And so it was, it was really a quantity. It's not hard to understand the politics of that in our present day, that's for sure. No, absolutely not. Um, and then uh, when Newsom left, Mayor Ed Lee was sort of faced with the same dilemma where, where the homelessness, the number of homeless people in the city had remained relatively stable after maybe the first few years of Newsom's term. Um, there was a lot of pressure on, on Ed Lee to sort of address this crisis, to, to fix this crisis. I remember doing some reporting on it at the time when I just started at the Chronicle. And um, it was a similar, similar mindset of, okay, well, we, need to, we need to open up as many of these buildings as, as we can. And so, again, uh, the, the quickest way to do that, and, and really the only way for it to pencil out, is to lease these SROs, um, which are heavily concentrated in the Tenderloin, Soma, and, and some in the Mission. I want to bring in uh, another voice to talk about some of these problems in this history and what can be done. Gail Gilman is the chief strategy officer at All Home. Welcome to the show, Gail. Thank you so much, Alexis, for having me. And be before I maybe zoom us out a little bit to give sort of a bigger picture perspective, I did want to say, Zia, I am so sorry 
that that was your experience. Um, supportive housing is a national model that's been around since the 1990s. And it is the best evidence-based practice for how to successfully have folks who've experienced unsheltered homelessness come inside, recover from their trauma, and engage in the services they need to put their life on whatever trajectory they feel is best. So I, I am so sorry that that was your experience. And I'm so happy that you're now at the Civic Center Hotel. Um, I mean, yeah, I, I know it well. So I just wanted to say that before I made yeah. my remarks no, thank to you. really acknowledge that experience. Well, Gail, let me ask you this. I mean, you've seen the investigation. You heard about the conditions from Zia, as you noticed, as well as from, from other people. From your perspective, what really has to change to do right by the people who are living in these SROs? No, that's a great question. And I think it's going to come down to a hard cho choice that um, both our elected officials need to make. Um, I think the recent commitments we've seen in the paper of trying to pour 16, I believe it was $16 million into these existing hotels that the mayor's office has put forward, I think is a good first step. But what we need to remember is the citizens of San Francisco um, really, um, rightfully so, um, and advocates are really demanding that we move people off the streets. And that's why the emphasis of Prop C and its funding is on new programming. And it really puts the city in this false choice scenario of having a um, influx of cash for new programming, but you can't build new programming on a crumbling foundation. And we need to invest in these existing programs and I think we need to be advocating at City Hall and with the mayor's office that we're okay with that. We're okay to pour dollars into capital to bring these buildings up to better standards, to up the case management ratios. And that might mean that we can't open the new program for 12, 15, or 18 months because we want to sure up the existing programs that we have. And maybe we should think of a mechanism to be able to use Prop C dollars for that purpose. And if that, so I think we need to really empower our elected officials and say it's okay. Yeah. Would more money solve, I mean, I don't think we can imagine it's going to solve all the problems, but would more money solve most of these problems? Or is there a, a deeper fracture or, or difficulties in the way that our specific San Francisco SRO housing system works. Like I understand what you're saying that supportive housing as a model around the world has has worked well, has a lot of evidence behind it. But our specific system of doing mm -hmm. it in this way with SROs concentrated in the Tenderloin, in these older buildings, that were all, all the specific histories of San Francisco, is there a problem with that or can that system be rehabilitated? You know, I, I actually do believe it can be rehabilitated. Prior to joining All Home, for over 17 years, the last 10 as its CEO, I ran Community Housing Partnership, the largest nonprofit developer and operator of supportive housing. And we had buildings like the Senator Hotel, um, the Essex that were SROs that we rehabilitated um, and that we would basically take down to the bones. We do the plumbing and the electrical, um, often put in kitchenettes and bathrooms. Um, and through that rehabilitation, we created a uh, more robust property that helped people be more successful versus doing new construction. So I think there is a model of acquisition and rehab. It would require the city purchasing those buildings if the owners are willing to sell um, and making a deep capital investment. Mm -hmm. That has trade-offs though, that you know is millions and millions of dollars in capital repair and purchase. 
And normally the buildings are offline for a period of time. So I think that could be one area to look. The other could be decommissioning hotels and moving folks like the situation that Zia and her residents were in. That will mean though that individuals who are currently experiencing unsheltered homelessness will um, need to wait for those resources. So it is this trade-off that I think we as San Franciscans need to consider. Yeah. Trisha Thadani, do, do you think that money is the central issue here as well and that this trade-off that we're <clears throat> talking about is kind of the central problem here? I think it's it's a major factor. I don't I, I wouldn't go as far to say as it is the factor. I mean, through our reporting, we definitely found, as Joaquin had mentioned earlier, that there is, um, you know, this chronic underfunding um, and that underfunding manifests itself in really, really severe staffing shortages. And if you don't have the staff to run these programs, um, I mean, that's a core tenant of, of this program, right, is to provide support. So if you don't have that, there's this model just can't fully succeed. Um, but on top of just the dire need for more funding. I mean, what we also found throughout our reporting is just the need for more oversight. Um, we were we did not find that the and you know 2020 audit of HSH had also found this that there wasn't these clear sort of metrics that these nonprofits were held to. Um, and you know the Department of Homelessness is relatively new, um, and may, even Mayor London Breed has been calling for more oversight on the department and its nonprofit providers to kind of ensure you know a higher standard of results um, and sort of these basic standards that we can hold these nonprofits to. But year over year, we have not seen um, you know in addition of oversight in any meaningful way. Um, now the Board of Supervisors is reviving a ballot measure that uh, Mayor London Freed and seven supervisors um, effectively killed uh, in 2019. Um, but after a report, they're, they're now reviving it to create a commission over the Department of Homelessness and Supportive Housing. Uh, no one thinks it's the solution, but um, or no one thinks it's a silver bullet, but, you know, remains to be seen what it will what it will actually do. But it's a step in the direction of providing more, more, oversight. more oversight and accountability. We're talking about a year-long San Francisco Chronicle investigation that found dangerous conditions in some of San Francisco's SROs. We're joined by the reporters behind the investigation, Trisha Thadani, City Hall reporter at the San Francisco Chronicle, as well as Joaquin Palomino, investigative reporter with the Chronicle. Also joined by Zia Martinez, a counselor and mediator and a former resident of the National Hotel, as well as Gail Gilman, chief strategy officer at All Home. I'm Alexis Madrigal. We're going to get to some of your calls. I know the lines are full. We're going to get to your calls right after the break. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. 
Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. We're talking about a year-long investigation by Chronicle reporters into San Francisco's SRO system. We're joined by those reporters, Trisha Thadani, Joaquin Palmino, as well as Zia Martinez, who lived in the SRO National Hotel, as well as Gail Gilman, Chief Strategy Officer at All Home. And I do want to get to some calls. Chris in San Francisco, you're up first. Welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for addressing this. I have done some case management and I've worked in substance use disorder treatment in the Tenderloin and South of Market. And I just want to speak to the, I don't want to say impossibility, but it it does feel oftentimes like you're drinking from a fire hose and why you've really got to get the ratio of providers to community members up because when you're dealing with people who have such incredible needs, they've got traumatic brain injuries, they've got neurological problems as their baseline. And these people are, uh, they, they have behaviors that are just to be perfectly honest, really hard on the properties. And it's just like, you are constantly playing catch up. Yeah. If you could just, you know, yeah, con- yeah. consider that the, the 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 impossibility of just based on the rate of need. Thank you so much, Chris. And I do I, I do worry that we end up focusing on, you know, almost like with schools, you know, have we end up like looking at, quote unquote, low performing schools. And it's because a lot of people have needs within those schools that, that aren't being met. Um, Joaquin Palmino, in this case, one of the things that I think is so interesting, so few dollars are actually going towards services. I mean, we were talking about earlier in the show, $7 a day per room for supportive services. The city says, well, that should be $18 a day. But I was thinking, even if we spent $1,000 you know, a, a year, I mean, it just feels like we could spend so much more money on services, which might actually reduce the maintenance costs, as Chris is sort of uh, implying there. What do, you, what do you think about the possibility of a lot more services rather than just sort of a, a marginal boost? Yeah, so I mean, it's a good question. One thing we we noticed and we heard sort of repeatedly from both the tenants and, and the staff members and the nonprofit directors was that you have people in these buildings with a really wide range of needs. And so there's a lot of tenants we talked to who like, they just need financial support. Um, mm-hmm. You know, they've sort of pulled their life together already. They're, they're, they're you know, stable. They just don't have enough money to live in the city that that is their home. Um, and, and so they just need financial support, but there's not very many options, right? There's very little what they call like step up housing where people can mm-hmm. move out of this environment that they no longer need to be in. Like just all they need is housing. They don't need to be in a housing program. Um, and then there's some people who need a lot more support. And, and so we heard this where it's like you could have a really small group of tenants who cause a lot of the, the issues in the building because they need far more help than they're getting. And, and these programs, um, you know, a lot of them aren't, aren't really designed for it, but it kind of speaks to this broader shortage in San Francisco of, of either, 
of those options, whether it's, you know, a lower level of care or a higher, I mean, I wouldn't even call it low level care, just, just affordable housing or, right. or a higher level of care for some of these people who, who do need more support. Yeah. Uh, Alexis, uh, I'm sorry, could I just go, add one oh, finer? Yeah. Go ahead. Sorry, it, one finer, one, yes, yeah, I Gilman. apologize. Yeah. Um, just one finer point to this, because All Home is working on this at a regional level. What we know is supportive housing, the, you know, um, with robust services, with nursing, with case management ratios of one to 25, really is the best fit for individuals and families that have um, either experiencing chronic homelessness, meaning they have a disabling condition and they've been unsheltered for a year or more, or those who have what the caller referenced, you know, um, substance abuse, mental health, um, mm -hmm. or, uh, or other disabilities. What the system doesn't do well is for those individuals who just need that affordable housing slot, it, it doesn't really look at the characteristics of who's experiencing homelessness mm -hmm. and sort of say, you need supportive housing, you need a flexible subsidy in the private market or an affordable housing placement or group housing or to reunite with family and friends. So the system sort of just funnels individuals towards supportive housing um, because that is um, where we have the most vacancy, where we have the, um, the most stability. Um, and you know, we're working with jurisdictions to think about how you can do a supportive housing model that has higher services for those who are more acute and lower services for those who might just need that affordable option. Not everyone experiencing homelessness needs a case manager with an office in their lobby. And I just think that's a point that gets lost sometimes in the mm -hmm. conversation. No, thank you for that. This was the whole point of the show is I think people really want to just say, oh, man, homelessness. We, we're not doing it. Things aren't working and trying to get people like a layer or two deeper into the mechanics and infrastructure that's that's really working here. Um, Charles in San Francisco, welcome to the show. Howdy. Howdy. This is Charles. Um, my issues are like the police don't address issues in the building. Um, one of the police officers came and was very angry at me that I would even call the police about the problems I had. Hmm. Um, the rent board, um, holds the city run, they, the city, the rent board holds city run buildings and federally run issues as exempt under their system. Um, the case managers, they are not effective for the needs of the people. So many times these case managers, they might have just gotten out of college or whatever themselves. Um, and I've, I've stayed in one of Gail Gilman's, well, I stayed in two of Gail Gilman's hotels or SROs, and they've always ignored my complaints. And it basically, it was, I've had a better life living homeless in San Francisco than living in Gail Gilman's buildings. And it's, I mean, I was harassed. I was attacked. I was continuously harassed by the drug dealers in front of the building. You know, they, you know, their staff tried to oppress. Hey, Charles, let me, let me, my I, I just want to get to Gail to respond. I, Gail, I'm sure this is not the first time that someone who has lived in one of your buildings has come to complaints, come with you to complaints yeah. and said, these things were, were not mm -hmm. addressed. So w what do you do? Sure. So I, I do just want to clarify that it's been three years since I stepped away from um, community housing partnership. Um, and um, yeah, so, you know, I think what we need to understand is, um, no, and I, I will own this, no system is perfect. 
just like any, you know, large scale organization, um, we have, we make missteps. And I apologize, Charles, that you had that experience living with us. I do want to also point out um, that the struggle is real. Um, you know, contracts uh, and wages for nonprofit workers have not kept up with the marketplace. Many of the individuals who pour their heart and soul in working in these buildings, from the desk clerk to the janitor to the caseworker, themselves are teetering on the edge of homelessness. And so while it's not an excuse for what Charles experienced, I do think there's a larger issue within our human services sector of raising wages so that we can A, keep people working for us in the jobs that are very, very hard. Um, and um, we can um, help stabilize staffing. So, you know, Community Housing Partnership had 17 buildings at the time I left, um, over 1,700 units. And um, I'm sure there were times when our staff did not execute perfectly, but we tried our best on a daily basis. Let's bring in uh, Evan from San Francisco who wants to talk about working in the SROs. Welcome, Evan. Hi. Uh, thanks for letting me through. Uh, yeah, I'm the chapter president, actually, for the Tenderland Housing Clinic Workers Union. So, you know, my coworkers and I are really happy that the conditions in these buildings are, are finally getting the attention um, that it deserves. But I think there's a concern that sometimes workers aren't a part of this discussion. Uh, you know, we're the ones who actually serve the the clients on the front line, and, and we do have a sense of, of what needs to change to, to improve conditions. Uh, you know, I what, mean, it's what would the you norm do, Evan? for us. Like what, yeah, from your perspective, what needs to change? Sure. I mean, to start, uh, the wages, right? I mean, it's the norm for workers of all types um, to not just have multiple jobs, but to live far outside of San Francisco. You know, it's not just case managers. I mean, desk clerks make 17 an hour, janitors 17 an hour. Does anyone here really think that's appropriate? Is that even a reflection of San Francisco's values in the remotest sense? I mean, the deck is stacked against us as workers um, to be able to provide the services the tenants do desperately need. So, I mean, if the city is serious about improving conditions in these buildings, we have to raise wages and pay a fair wage for hard work. There really is no future where the tenants get what they deserve and workers are paid unlivable wages. This work is not paid and treated as if it's important by the city, yet the city pretends that it cares about this. Yeah. Evan, thanks so much for, for that perspective. Uh, Trisha Dadani, how would that happen? Like, how would more dollars flow to the people who are working in these SROs? Like, who, who would have to make different decisions than they do now? Mm -hmm. I mean, that, that comes down to the city budget, and the person in charge of that budget is Mayor London Breed. Um, we will see in a couple of weeks, her budget proposal for the upcoming fiscal year. Um, and then over the summer, she and the Board of Supervisors will get to sort of work on that together. Um, but ultimately, you know, she kind of has the most control over how that money is spent. Um, so we will see, you know, if these case managers will get, um, will get the raises that they are rightfully advocating for. You know, one listener tweets, I've been working in this system for years. All these buildings are managed by nonprofits rather than the city itself. Nonprofits pay employees low and have poor management. Why can't the city take responsibility for itself? Another uh, Christopher writes, please give us listeners a breakdown of where and how $1.1 billion is being spent annually to remedy homelessness in San Francisco. It's impossible to imagine a less functional outcome 
for a billion dollars. This is outrageous. Every single one of those sentences had an exclamation point, and I definitely have encountered that same sentiment in the streets of the city. Uh, for my Chronicle reporters here, can you do that breakdown? I know it's tough to do off the top of your head, not staring at the city budget, but w- where is that money going is the big question. I can try. Um, so like I had said earlier, the bulk of that $1.1 billion, and the reason it looks, it, or it is so big this year is because for a couple of years, the Prop C dollars from that 2018 business tax, me- tax measure was tied up in a lawsuit. Um, so last, I believe it was last year where we suddenly, like this money was suddenly unlocked. So it was like this flood of Prop C monies that we, money that we had. Um, so this year is like unusually large because of that. And then, you know, because of the pandemic, we also had federal and extra federal and state funding that we wouldn't get in a normal year. Um, so the bulk of that money, because it comes from Prop C, it is actually outlined very specifically where that money is supposed to go in the buckets in which um, we are basically allowed to spend that money. Um, the Prop C committee um, oversees that money pretty strictly. Um, and, you know, there's a lot of public meetings that if people are interested, they could, they can go and see actually like the discussions around how this money is spent. For the rest of it, I don't have the exact breakdown, but I can say confidently that the bulk of the Department of Homelessness and Supportive Housing's budget actually goes to maintaining um, supportive housing. Um, you know, I don't have the exact percentage off of my head, but a lot of the money that is spent on homelessness is actually spent on people who are already housed. So that's why you're not really seeing it, um, you know, actually spent um, on those who, who are on the streets. So, you know, it. but at the same time, we found that there was, um, in the last uh, budget, there was only 2% of the budget that was going to bolster services in the existing supportive housing program while all this money from Propsy was going into the new programs as well. Yeah. Uh, Lauren, another listener, writes in to say, it is critical we address the crumbling foundation and part of that is addressing wage equity and supporting the workforce. Thousands of workers in supportive housing are BIPOC and have lived experience of homelessness and are paid with wages that keep them trapped in poverty. Positions lie vacant, turnover is high, and the impact on tenants is significant. However, within that foundation, there are thousands of units of supportive housing that are thriving, successful communities. This solution works, and I would appreciate the opportunity to tell stories where it works and where what is needed to sustain that success. Zia Martinez, you actually have experienced two totally different types of experiences within these SROs. What's working at your new place? Um, what's working is I have a really awesome case manager, um, Sonia Washington. She, uh, she's just, she's there. She's here. We have, um, first off my room, I have a bath, I have my own bathroom in my, in my space. Um, I have a beautiful like window overlooking a garden. Um, we have more, there's more community involvement. Um, even though there's a there's mostly old older people, it feels like it's a senior a senior building here, and I'm in my early 40s, so I'm <laughs> kind of not in that demographic. Um, it's it's working because I think that they care. You know, um, I I have a good relationship with my manager, um, and and they do everything by the books. Like if there's a client complaint or if there's something like that, they address it. Um, they just seem like they're more on it. Like they um, like like they said, like they care. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Gail Gilman, what do you think? Where where are the places that work? 
Yeah, so I think there, as Lauren said in her comment, I think there's thousands and thousands of units where people are thriving. And I think um, what we need to remember is in, in, in any building, usually there's a small percentage of residents who are incredibly high need. Um, and um, if you're short staffed, all the services usually are driven towards those individuals. So you can't assist other individuals in achieving their educational goals or volunteering or doing that work. So I think, I think we've all said it, we need to be investing more um, in these properties. And I think, unfortunately, the position we're, we're stuck in right now is that all of the new money flowing to San Francisco is highly restrictive for new programming. Mm -hmm. So how do we um, either pivot those funds, make regulatory changes so they can be used to shore up this foundation, or um, do we just then decide that we are going to pour more of our general fund, our taxpayer base, um, in, um, into investments um, in these older mm -hmm. properties? I do want to just say one point because the caller talked about the $1 billion, and I think Trisha's assessment of where it goes was spot on. I do want to say, though, supportive housing, which is the bulk of what the department's spends their funds on day-to-day -day operations, both services and a rental subsidy, is a poverty expenditure. The individual, Zia is no longer homeless. Zia is housed, thriving, and, and on a trajectory of her own life. And I do think the public, when they think of homelessness expenditures, they think of what's addressing those on our streets, in okay. our shelters, living under the bridge. And this is basically supporting um, housing, um, in perpetuity, this would be like saying that food stamps is a homelessness expenditure mm -hmm. or first five education mm -hmm. for our youth is a homelessness expenditure. And I think we need to lift up that frame and understand we're doing poverty interventions so San Franciscans can stay in San Francisco. Yeah. You know, uh, Trisha Thadani, City Hall reporter with San Francisco Chronicle, there are a lot of people in our comments saying, isn't this evidence that Housing First has has failed this this policy. We have just a few seconds here, but do you think it's evidence for that or evidence of some other systemic problems? I would strongly push back against that. Actually, I don't think this is evidence that Housing First is sort of a failed model. Um, I think it is evidence that, you know, we found through like years of research that when done right, permanent supportive housing is the most effective and humane way to address homelessness. Um, we have just found, you know, through this model, the real harms that can happen when you do when you don't put the appropriate investments and resources into it. So I don't think this is not an indictment on housing first. Rather, it's you know we're showing what happens when you don't you know put the adequate resources into it. We've been talking about a really tremendous year-long San Francisco Chronicle investigation into SROs with the reporters on that investigation, Trisha Thadani and Joaquin Palomino with the San Francisco Chronicle. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having us. Yeah, thanks so much. We've also been joined by Zia Martinez, former resident of the National Hotel, counselor and mediator, and Gail Gilman, chief strategy officer at All Home. Thanks to you two. You've been listening to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Stay tuned for another hour ahead with Marisa Lagos. Funds for the production of Forum are provided by the members of KQED Public Radio, the Germanicos Foundation, the Generosity Foundation, and the Heising Simons Foundation. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. 
Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. All over the country, we need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all across the nation. And it's happening because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. Sold a Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. New episodes of Sold a Story are available now.